All right. So chapter 21 is head trauma. It's an introduction. Head injuries can be life-threatening and can lead to permanent disability. Patient's mental status can make assessment difficult. A lot of times when we are dealing, especially with major head trauma, patient's likely going to have some altered mental status. Because of that altered mental status, they also tend to be combative in many cases as well. It may make it very difficult for us to assess these patients. Prompt recognition, prompt treatment are critical for patient outcomes. So a uh, review of the anatomy of the skull. Cranial skull surrounds the brain. And then we have the face down in the front part. Face is made up of 14 uh, bones. The basilar skull, the bottom portion of that skull is going to be the weakest portion. That's because it, it has a lot of holes in it. It has the hole, the frame and magnum where the uh, spinal cord exits. There's also uh, large holes for things like your carotid arteries and so forth. Some of the basilar skull bones are thin, perforated extensively by the spinal cord, nerves, and blood vessels. So again, it's, it's the weakest part, so it's the, the most likely part of the skull that's going to fracture. And being rigid, the skull severely limits swelling and bleeding in the brain. Bleeding and swelling results in the brain absorbing the increase in pressure. So your brain's basically, the way to think about it is your brain is in a enclosed box, your skull. So if we start adding more things to the box, there's no place for it to go. So head injuries, we get swelling, we get bleeding, we get an increase in cerebral spinal fluid, whatever the case may be, it's entering the skull, it has no place to go. Go. The skull is rigid, it's not gonna like bulge outward. So all of that increase in pressure, all it's doing is compressing that brain down. And your brain again is absorbing all of that increase in pressure. So again, your skull, we have the occipital region down here in the back, two parietals on each side. Then you have your frontal, your temporal bones right here, and then we move into all the facial bones. Anatomy of the brain. Brain is cushioned by cerebral spinal fluid, which is abbreviated CSF. And so one thing that we're looking at is if there is, we see CSF outside of the skull, we know that there has to be a leak somewhere from a skull fracture. So again, CSF leaking from the nose, from the ears, is an indication of a basilar skull fracture. Again, that box is, is tracked. No place for that CSF to go, but inside the skull. Now, if we break that box, we have a skull fracture. Now that CSS, CSF, has a place to go. It's going to be running from the nose or running out of the ears. So again, if we see that, that indicates a skull fracture. Your brain's line, the lining of the brain is known as the meninges. And there's three layers of the meninges that surround the brain. The outermost layer, the one that's making contact with the actual skull itself, is known as the dura mater. The middle layer is the arachnoid, and the innermost layer that's actually in contact with the brain is the 
pia So things like meningitis, that's an inflammation of the meninges. So again, we have these, the brain right here, we have the skull. Then we have those meninges that surrounding it. The duramater is that outermost, piamater is the inner or the innermost, and that arachnoid is in between the two. These meninges go down and coat the spinal cord as well. So the meninges, bleeding that occurs between the duramater and the skull is known as an epidural bleed. So that's outside of the meninges, right off the skull. That's an epidural. Subdural bleeding occurs beneath the duramater. So if it's in between the duramater and somewhere else in the skull, that is a subdural bleed. Subdural bleeds are normally venous. Epidural bleeds may be venous, but are typically arterial, and they tend to be a little bit or not a little bit, they're a lot more dangerous than subdural bleeds. Bleeding that occurs between the arachnoid membrane and the surface of the brain is called a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Parts of the brain. We have the cerebrum, the largest part of the brain. There's two hemispheres of the cerebrum. Each hemisphere has four lobes. The cerebrum is responsible for conscious, sensory functions, emotions, and personality. Then we have the cerebellum. Maybe you've heard it referred as the little brain, coordinates movement, reflexes that maintain posture and equilibrium. We have the brainstem. It's made up of the pons, midbrain, the medulla oblongata. And the brainstem controls the autonomic functions, including cardiac, respiratory, and your vasomotor functions, vasodilation, constriction, and so forth. And the medulla connects the brain to the spinal cord. So different types of head injuries. So a lot of these injuries all kind of get thrown in as listed as head injuries. So part of this is going to be scalp injuries. It's not to the skull, it's just to the scalp, the meaty, flesh, fleshy portion of the top of the head. Scalp injuries, we treat those like they are soft tissue injuries. That's all they are. It's important for us to note that the scalp is very rich in blood vessels. If you get somebody with a pretty significant scalp laceration, it's probably going to bleed pretty heavily because there are so many blood vessels present. Not only that, they don't constrict very well either. So it's going to be harder for them to clot, so bleeding can be perfuse. If the skull's intact, though, with a good scalp laceration, there's not much meat, fat, or soft tissue up there, so they're typically fairly easy to control because we can put direct pressure on them and it's pinching those arteries off, the blood vessels off directly against the skull. Bleeding beneath the scalp can make assessment of the skull difficult. So one thing that we talked about during trauma assessment is we, we want to palpate that skull. We want to feel for anything abnormal in that skull. 
Well, if the patient has bleeding underneath the scalp and it's causing massive hematomas, lumps and stuff on the skull, on the skull we're not going to be able to fill the skull. All we're going to be able to fill is that pooling of the blood. So that scalp laceration or bleeding underneath the scalp anyway, can make the feeling palpating portion of our skull assessment a little bit more difficult for us. So there is an example of a pretty significant scalp laceration. We notice how it's kind of coming off almost into a flap. We call this a degloving type of incident. Again, there's not much meat protection there. So these really, it, yeah, it, obviously it takes some force to happen, but these are not that uncommon. You will probably see some of these type of injuries. Management of this, if there's any dirt or debris in there, we're gonna irrigate it, flush it all out, get it as clean as we can. We're gonna set that flat right back down over the skull. We're gonna hold direct pressure until we get to the hospitals. That's all we're gonna be able to do for those type of injuries. But you can look, that is the patient's skull right there. So while that, flap, while that flap is open, we irrigate it, look to see if we see any type of fractures or anything like that in the skull. So that we're talking about scalp injuries. Now we're moving on to skull injuries. Deformity of the skull does require extreme amounts of trauma. So vast majority of the time, if the patient does have a skull fracture, we're probably not going to feel any type of deformity because it takes a lot of, of, of mechanism in order to actually cause a feelable deformity. So we may feel the skull, everything feels normal, but they still can have a skull fracture. So most skull fractures are linear, just a crack line. There's no depressed segment, anything along those lines. A depressed skull fracture occurs when the bone ends are pushed in towards the brain. So a depressed skull fracture is exactly what it sounds like. We start filling the skull and we feel a nice sunken in portion of where that fracture is. Well, that little indention, those bone ends are getting closer, pushing down in on that brain as well. And skull fractures can be open or closed as well doesn't have to have a cut in the skin or the scalp in order for us to have a skull fracture. The basilar skull fracture involves the floor of the cranium. And again, that is the weakest portion of the skull. So majority of the skull fractures we come across are likely going to be basilar skull fractures. And again, the big concern was there was enough damage to crack the skull What's going on inside the brain? Is the brain damaged as well? From the fracture itself or just from those forces uh, that the body went through that when it sustained that skull fracture, the brain was put through some of that trauma as well. So basilar skull fracture, crane, the bottom of the floor of the cranium. Basilar skull fracture often results in some telltale signs. One of those things that we're gonna be looking for to help us get our field diagnosis of a skull fracture, basilar skull fracture, is the leakage or the drainage of cerebral spinal fluid or that CSF. Where we're gonna to tend to see it is the nose and the ears primarily, but we may still, we may see some of it from the mouth as well. So during our assessment, that's something we wanna pay attention to, looking at the ears, looking at the nose, do we see any fluid or blood 
leaking out of those orifices. The other telltale signs, we can have paraorbital egmosis or bilateral black eyes, and we refer to this as raccoon's eyes. The third sign that we're looking for is bruising over the mastoid processes, and that mastoid process is behind the ear. And that we refer to that bruising behind the ear as battle signs. So bilateral blackened eyes, bruising behind the ears, we're starting to think that patient probably has a skull fracture. Add the leakage of the CSF on top of it, we can pretty much be certain that there is a break somewhere inside that skull. And danger is related to the underlying damage to the brain. Again, the skull fracture is worrisome simply for the fact that enough force made contact with that patient that if it's cracked their skull, that brain inside that skull had to have gone through some major trauma as well. So there's an example of raccoon eyes. Again, it's bilateral blackened eyes. And there is battle signs or bruising behind that patient's ears. So again, you need to know what raccoon eyes, battle signs are, and what does it indicate. Moving on to brain injuries now. Again, these are the ones that we're really worried about. So swelling and bleeding within the skull can increase the pressure within the skull, which decreases tissue, brain tissue perfusion. So again, as things leak or fall or start swelling into the brain, it has nowhere to go. The softest part uh, inside the skull is your brain. So it's gonna be absorbing, compressing under that increase in pressure. So when, again, when that's happening, when we have swelling, when we have increased cerebral spinal fluid, we have bleeding inside the skull, we refer to that as an increased intracranial pressure or increased ICP. Brain injury caused by trauma is often referred to as a TBI or a traumatic brain injury. So TBIs, traumatic brain injuries can occur from penetrating trauma, blunt force trauma, or a secondary type of injury. We're gonna talk about some of these secondary type of injuries. And brain injuries can be open or closed. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. So TBIs may be a direct injury, results from penetrating trauma of the brain, gunshot wound to the brain, that bullet passes into the skull, makes contact, obliterates the brain, that is a direct TBI. We are more likely, in most cases, we see more indirect TBIs than we do direct TBIs. Indirect TBIs are from a blow to the head. So somebody gets struck in the head with a baseball bat. They fall, strike their head. They get in a car wreck and their head hits the windshield or the dash or what have you. <clears throat> we can also have secondary traumatic brain injuries or, or head injuries is due to other conditions. So after the fact that they smack their head and they're having an increase in intracranial pressure, now they're starting to become hypoxic. The buildup of carbon dioxide drops in blood pressure that those changes in those vital signs and that pathophysiology is gonna start actually making the head injury worse, causing further more extensive damage. 
So for us, there's nothing that we can do for the primary uh, injury. We can't do anything for a direct or indirect injury. That's already happened. That's done with. There's nothing that we can do to treat that. Management of a head injury or a brain injury now turns to focusing on, well, we want to prevent further damage from occurring. We want to prevent the secondary damage. So we focus on making sure the patient has plenty of oxygen, make sure they're breathing adequately to get rid of their carbon dioxide, doing what we can to help support and drive that blood pressure. So primary brain injuries. Primary brain injury, again, is a result of trauma to the brain that occurs at the time of the insult from direct impact, acceleration, deceleration, where the brain is just basically getting sloshed around inside that skull. Major deceleration, the brain slaps forward in front of the skull, then it bounces off the skull and slaps the back of the skull. Or, again, penetrating trauma. Results in contusions to the brain, bruising to the brain, bleeding within the brain, or laceration of the brain tissue. And again, like I said previously, there is nothing that we can do that's going to reverse the effects of a direct brain injury. That tissue is extremely sensitive. Once it starts malfunctioning or is damaged, it's probably not going to regain its function. So there's nothing that we're doing for that primary head injury. Secondary head injury, though, that is something that we are trying to prevent from happening or trying to correct if it already started to happen. So it occurs from a complex cascade of processes following the primary brain injury, which can continue for hours to days. And again, our treatment for head injuries is geared towards preventing or limiting the progression of a secondary brain injury. So that brain injury is going to worsen by things like hypoxemia, low oxygen concentration in the blood. How we fix that? Well, if they're not breathing very well or they have piss poor O2 sets, we're going to correct it, either giving them high flow supplemental O2. Or if they're not breathing adequately on their own, we're going to ventilate them with the BBM. Hypercarbia, meaning that they're holding on to their carbon dioxide. Well, how, do they, how does your body naturally get rid of carbon dioxide? by breathing it out. So how we can correct hypercarbia, if that's a problem in our patient, is to ventilate. If we're ventilating at the appropriate rates, uh, tidal volume, et cetera, we shouldn't have to worry about hypercarbia. Hypoglycemia, low blood sugar. We deprive that injured brain of glucose, it's gonna make that head injury worse. Hyperglycemia can also do this as well. Hyperthermia and hypotension as well with the systolic blood pressure less than 90 millimeters of mercury. So again, our focus of care is to try to prevent these items or treat these items as they present themselves. Hypotension and hypoxemia are the two conditions most critical to try to treat and prevent. 75% mortality rate of TBI victims with hypoxemia and hypotension occur simultaneously. So it's saying that if a patient with a head injury gets hypoxic and hypotensive, they have a 75% chance of dying. So again, that's where our focus needs to be, is treating, preventing secondary head injuries. 
Hypoxemia can result in 150% increase in overall mortality, meaning a patient with a head injury that is hypoxic is one and a half times more likely to die. <clears throat> so again, our focus, minimize secondary injury. How we do that? Well, we need to maintain a patent airway. Again, trying to prevent that hypoxemia. Make sure that airway is nice, clear, open, and patent. Make sure that the patient is breathing adequately on their own. If they're not breathing adequately on their own, poor rate and or poor tidal volume, we start ventilating the patient. We want to work to maintain SpO2 sats at or above 95%, so supplemental O2 if needed, or if we're ventilating the patient with the BVM, the BVM is going to be hooked up to O2. Do what we can to try to keep the blood pressure above 90 millimeters of mercury. Now, that's at the basic level. There's not just a whole hell of a lot we can do to help increase or to help drop blood pressure. Advanced paramedic level, they can get fluids, they can give drugs to try to help drive and increase blood pressure. And do what we can to maintain a normal body temperature on the patient as well. and normal blood glucose. Again, for us at the basic level, head injury is probably gonna have ultra mental status, add on top of it that they're hypox or uh, hypoglycemic, they're very unlikely that they're gonna be able to swallow oral glucose. So make sure that we are requesting ALS backup. If they are hypoglycemic, they can start an IV and give the sugar through the IV, either D50 or D10, depending on protocol. Other things that we need to try to be on the lookout for, and that's going to make their head condition worse, is if that head injury leads to them starting to have seizures. And again, seizures can worsen the injury. And if it's a head injury causing seizures, we already know it's a pretty bad head injury. Treatment of that seizure, ain't nothing we can do for it. We're going to treat it just like we would any other seizure. Manage, uh, manage the seizures with aggressive management of the ABCs, oxygenation, ride it out. Hopefully ALS is in route where they can give drugs to stop it. Again, request ALS backup for fluids, for hypotensive patients, or for medications to stop seizures. Or if we can't maintain the airway, they can intubate the patient if need be as well. So when we get that increase in intracranial pressure, that fluid bleeding, swelling starting to occur, one thing we're worried about is brain herniation. So that increased in intracranial pressure from bleeding or swelling forces the brain out of its normal position. So again, that brain is getting pressed by that bleed, by that cerebral spinal fluid, whatever the case may be, and now the brain is no longer in its normal position. Again, the brain is what's absorbing all of that increase in pressure, and that absorption of that pressure is going to cause dysfunction. And herniation obliterates vital brain stem functions. So once we start getting to the point where the herniation is getting severe, now it's starting to affect the brain stem, which controls all of your vital signs. So signs and symptoms that we're on the lookout for, for brain herniation, this just also goes with increased intracranial pressure. So we need to recognize these vital signs when we see it. We see these vital signs, 
Yep, that looks like increased intracranial pressure. We got to start worrying about brain herniation. So what are we going to see? Dilated or sluggish pupils on one side of the body. Again, just depending on what side of the head, the brain is absorbing the majority of the increase of pressure. We can also see weakness and paralysis. Again, if it's in the skull, the brain's causing the weakness or paralysis. It's typically going to be on one side of the body. Severe alterations of consciousness, they may be completely unresponsive. TBIs, increase in intracranial pressure can also cause posturing, again, to corticate, the cerebrate posturing. Abnormal, irregular breathing pattern. And we can start seeing Cushing's reflex. So verbatim signs, Cushing's reflex. We're going to have an increase, elevated blood pressure, and we're going to have a slowing heart rate. So if we look at Cushing's, and now we start thinking back to hypovolemic shock, what are the vital signs, the blood pressure, and the pulse rate we expect to see on hypovolemic shock? Well, we're supposed to see elevated heart rate, falling blood pressure for shock. And Cushing's, you can tell, is the exact opposite. So that's one way we can kind of differentiate what do we think is going on with the patient is based on these vital signs. An increase in blood pressure, slow heart rate, that's telling us they, hate, they have a head injury with increased intracranial pressure. Fast heart rate, low blood pressure from a traumatic injury, uh, this is probably going to be hypovolemic shock. They're probably bleeding out somewhere. So that is important for us to be able to distinguish the difference. And I guarantee you on your test, not only in my class, but probably in the NR, you're going to have a scenario that's going to give you vital signs from a trauma, and it's going to ask, what do we think is happening? And it's going to give us the difference between hypovolemic shock and a head injury with increased intracranial pressure. So again, we need to memorize these vital sign changes. So closed versus open head injuries. An open wound to the head does not signify a more severe brain injury. Just because it's open doesn't mean it's going to be more severe than a closed. And then oftentimes, depending on severity, we would rather have an open head injury versus a closed head injury. The lack of a wound to the head does not indicate a lesser brain injury. Again, closed head injuries can be just as dangerous, if not more so, than open head injuries for the simple fact that if it's open, that increase in pressure at least now has a place to drain out of. So it actually helps reducing that increased intracranial pressure. Close head injury, the scalp can be lacerated, but the skull remains intact. Now, when we're talking about head injuries, open versus closed, we are referring to the skull. Just because the scalp is lacerated, doesn't mean it's an open head injury. The scalp can be lacerated and still having massive ICP and it still be considered a closed head injury. Open head injury, there has to be a break in the skull and a break in the scalp. So this may be an example and it's hard to tell from what we're seeing, but this is a closed head injury. They got a break in the scalp or the, the skin but the skull is still intact. Now, if the patient's having increased intracranial pressure, it would definitely be considered a closed head injury. 
versus this, which is an open head wound or injury where the scalp is lacerated, the skull is fractured as well, and we're looking down in here, and that's actually brain tissue that we are looking at. For TBIs, we can also have what's known as a diffuse axonal injury or a DAI, is a brain injury from shearing, tearing, and stretching of the nerve fibers. It interferes with the transmission of nervous impulses. And these are typically related to severe acceleration and deceleration forces, again, where the brain slaps the front, back, side, side of the skull. It may be mild, like a concussion, moderate, or very severe. So concussion, that's a mild diffuse axonal injury, and that is an acceleration, deceleration type of injury. Think uh, uh, football players, head-to-head -head collision that occurs. That head hits, the skull stops, the, the body stops, but that brain is still moving forward until it meets resistance. So it's going to move forward until it hits the front of the skull. After it hits the front of the skull, it's probably going to get thrown backwards and hit the back of the skull as well. normally causes some disturbances in the brain function. Presentation ranges from momentary confusion to brief, complete loss of responsiveness. After the incident, it normally patients are with a concussion are generally going to present, complain with a headache. Very important for us to remember here that concussion signs and symptoms typically start immediately and then gradually improve over time. Now, it's not going to be instant, maybe not going to be minutes to hours, but slowly their brain is going to start getting better. Brain contusions, bruising or swelling of the brain can accompany a concussion as well. The patients can have both may or may not be caused may not cause increase in intracranial pressure it's going to be very dependent on how large of a portion that brain is injured and how much swelling is starting to occur there is a little bit of room in the brain so if it's not getting to the point where it's compressing brain tissue then we're not going to see those signs and symptoms of an increased intracranial pressure and contusions caused by coup connor coup acceleration, deceleration mechanisms, which is basically the same. Again, the coup counter coup is where the brain hits the front of the skull. Head-on collision, brain hits the front of the skull. That's the coup force. Then it sloshes backwards, hits the back of the skull, causing bruising to the front and the back of the brain. That is the coup contra coup effect. Damage to the point of the blow and or damage to the opposite side of the blow, again, where that brain is getting sloshed around. Head acceleration, deceleration, head comes to a sudden stop, a brain continues to move back and forth. So signs and symptoms of a brain contusion include one or more of the following. Degreasing mental status, coma, can cause paralysis, again, typically on one side of the body, unequal pupils, 
vomiting. And again, I think we've mentioned this before. Anytime that we have vomiting caused by head injuries, increase in intracranial pressure, the vomiting is typically going to be very violent. We call it projectile vomiting. Alteration of vital signs are possible as well. Again, depending how much swelling, how much of the brain is injured. And during this time, they can have profuse or profound personality changes as well. Other type of injuries, we can have a subdural hematoma. It's a collection of the blood between the duramater and the arachnoid. It's normally due to low pressure bleeding from small bridging veins. Those small bridging veins are typically weak, so it may not take just a whole hell of a lot of force to rupture them, fall, for example, or in some situations, they may just rupture on their own because they are weak. Often, though, they are associated with cerebral contusions, so head injuries. And the bleeding inside the skull, like we previously talked about, can lead to an increase in intracranial pressure. So again, what's going on right here? We have that the duramater is right there, and now we have bleeding below that duramater, but still in the meninges. So as that swelling occurs, we're starting to see where that brain is getting compressed and that pool of blood is located. Now, one thing that we look at that doctors are gonna look, like, look at on a CT, this is the midline of the cerebrum or cere uh, cerebrum with the two hemispheres. So we're looking at this midline, it should be like it sounds, should be in the middle of the skull. Now we can see it's starting to press away or push away they're going to refer to that as midline shift. And if we hit midline shift, it's telling us it's a very significant type of bleed. So the two types of subdural hematomas, we can have an acute subdural hematoma where the signs and symptoms begin immediately. Patient falls, strike their head, start having that subdural hematoma, they instantly get symptomatic. Or we can have an occult or oculate sign and symptoms uh, that are delayed for days to even weeks. These are very small bridging veins. So the patient falls, strikes their head, starts having the subdural hematoma, but is bleeding so slowly that the patient's not going to be symptomatic from it. Two or three days later to even weeks later, the patient starts having signs and symptoms of increased intracranial pressure because enough bleeding has occurred where it's starting to compress on that brain. And some of these bleeds, they may have gotten a CT the day of the fall. They didn't see anything on the CT, discharged her, sent her home. Two or three days later, get symptomatic, come back, do a repeat CT, and now they can start seeing the bleed. It's a common type of severe head injury. Elderly patients are the greatest risk due to the weakness of those bridging veins. Also, those patients that have longer clotting times, including alcoholics, or those that take blood thinners. So if we're dealing with a fall, that's one question we should be asking every single patient, pretty much in any traumatic condition. Do you take blood thinners? If the answer is yes, they need to go to the hospital, even if they don't look bad. If they take blood thinners, fell and hit their head, 
that's automatic criteria, they're going to get a CT. So that's something that we need to educate our patients with. I know you don't feel too bad, you said you didn't hit very hard, but you do take blood thinners. We're worried about having some bleeding inside your brain or your skull. We really need to take it to the hospital so they can look, get a CT. So that was subdural. Epidural hematomas is bleeding between the dura mater and the skull, so kind of outside of the meninges. These are more rare, but they are extremely emergent. These are typically arterial bleeds from a ruptured artery, so they're going to bleed heavy, fast, often associated with a fracture of the temporal skull. So it's going to require more force to occur as well. And bleeding is rapid, severe, causing a rapid increase in intracranial pressure. Late signs of a epidural include fixed dilated pupils, absent reflexes, and decreasing of vital signs. So again, here's an example of that epidural hematoma. Again, they're often associated with this fractured temporal bone. So something occurs, temporal bone gets fractured, that artery right there ruptures, and since there's a fracture in the skull now, now it has that place for that blood to drain. And again, now we're going to get massive bleeding typically pretty quickly. We may also see a patient that just has laceration of brain tissue. This can occur with a closed or open wound. This results in bleeding, nervous system disruption. With isolated head trauma, Cushing's reflex can cause the patient's systolic blood pressure to increase and the heart rate to decrease. So our assessment-based approach for head injuries. We're going to start with our scene size up. Unresponsiveness, altered mental status from trauma, one of the things that we need to start considering as a cause is going to be a head injury. Signs of head injury, again, may, may be very apparent. We may see obvious deformity or obvious damage to the, to the head, which we instantly know, yep, they're probably going to have a pretty bad head injury. Remember, we never assume that mental status changes in a trauma patient are due to drug or alcohol intoxication. We always assume that there is a traumatic cause for that change or alteration in men mental status. Again, make sure we evaluate the mechanism of injury. So here's something uh, we see spottering or uh, breaking of that windshield that may indicate that the patient's head struck that windshield, which in turn may have caused a head injury. Primary assessment, if the head is injury, we suspect a major head injury, we're probably gonna go ahead and just assume the patient has spinal injury as well, so take spinal precautions. If needed, establish an airway with the jaw thrust maneuver. Maintain SpO2 sats at or above 95%. 
If the patient's not breathing adequately on their own, poor rate and or poor tidal volume, then when you're gonna ventilate them with the BBM hooked up to O2. We do wanna be cautious that we do not hyperventilate a head injury patient. That's how it used to be taught, why they make special references to this now. Now we may breathe a little bit faster than we normally do just to assure that they're not gonna build up CO2, but we don't wanna just grossly hyperventilate them like we used to back in the day. So we maintaining C-spine on the patient. We're going through our ABCs, assessing airway, breathing. Now we have injuries to the face and head here. One thing that we're gonna worry about is airway blockers. So her face is all chewed up. I don't know what the hell happened. Nose as well. We're gonna worry about that blood causing an airway obstruction. So be aggressive on our suctioning if it's indicated to do so. Go through your determined mental status using your AVPU mnemonic. Again, the A is if they're alert. If they're not alert, we try to get them to arouse to a verbal stimulus, shout, say their name, see if they have any type of response. If they don't respond to verbal stimulus, now we move on to assess uh, with painful stimulus, do that trapezius pinch, armpit pinch, sternal rub if, if you want to. And if they don't respond to any type of painful stimulus, we classify them as being unresponsive. Again, every patient we run on, we're gonna get a GCS. It's a more precise way to determine mental status, but GCS is not going to be obtained or figured out oftentimes until a little bit later. Secondary assessment. GCS is a measure of the patient's eye opening, verbal responses and motor responses uh, to different stimuli generally reproducible by other healthcare providers. So if I assess a patient and get a GCS of 13, Cole should be able to assess the exact same patient using the exact same test and get that same number. For review for your GCS, 15 is the highest, three is the lowest. So eye openings, your AFPU mnemonic, verbal response is confusion. Are they able to talk, make sounds or no response? And motor response, follow commands, localizes to pain, withdraws to pain, then we go through our posturing, decortigate, decerebate, and if they have absolutely no response to pain, they get a one. So again, a dead body will get a GCS score of three. Secondary assessment, perform a physical exam. Again, if we suspect a head injury, that's a significant mechanism of injury, or we assume the patient's gonna be major, we're gonna do our rapid head to toe exam on the patient. Assess the pupils for equality, response to light, pearl, pupils equal, and reactive to light. Assess for posturing as well. Anticipate altered pain response as well. Again, not much we can do for it. Full set of vital signs, remember, is done during that secondary assessment as well and obtain a history if we can. So again, inspect, carefully palpate the patient's head. Examine the head for deformities, depressions, lacerations, impelled objects, 
So again, here we can see that depressed skull section fracture. We have that area that's soft upon palpation. It's kind of another one of those sayings. If we notice a depressed segment, don't keep pressing on it or put a lot of pressure behind it because all we're doing is driving those bone ends into the brain. So we feel the depressed segment, note it, don't palpate it again, keep right on rolling with your assessment. I love how the book tells us don't use bright flashlights. We should use pen lights that are designed to be shining eyes and their textbook shows them using a damn flashlight to check people's response. Do not do that. Use a pen light. Example of what unequal pupils may look like. Again, we're just comparing the left to right size to make sure that they are the same size. Note any bleeding from the ears. So we have blood from the ears. One of the things that we're going to be worried about, well, there's bleeding. Is it bleeding because they injured their ear? Or is there cerebral spinal fluid mixed in with that blood? And there is a test that we can perform to determine is there CSF mixed in with that blood? We'll talk about it here in a minute. Again, look for posturing, decorting it with the arms towards the core. The cerebit is the arms extended. Patient's conscious, we can assess motor and sensory function in all four extremities. Obtain your vital signs for head injuries. Again, if it's a head injury, we're probably assuming that the patient's unstable, so we're going to record those vital signs every five minutes. And again, remember those differences between shock and closed head injury with increased intracranial pressure. If we have a high systolic blood pressure, that's going to be more indicative of a head injury with increased intracranial pressure. If we have a low blood pressure, now that's more indicative that the patient is bleeding somewhere, probably going into shock. So this is important for us to remember. An adult patient cannot lose enough blood into their skull to cause them to go into hypovolemic shock. There's just not enough room. So if we have a patient with a suspected head injury and they're showing signs and symptoms of hypovolemic shock, that's telling us they're probably bleeding somewhere else in the body as well. Maybe bleeding into the abdomen. The abdomen may be getting firm and distended, or they may be bleeding into that pelvic cavity as well. But so they can have both. You can have a massive head injury and be hypovolemic as well. Hypovolemic, <clears throat> again, hypotensive, it's going to make that head injury worse, but we're not going to be worried about increasing intracranial pressure so much because they're losing that excessive volume somewhere else. So patients can have a head injury, but if we have a suspected head injury with signs and symptoms of shock, again, that's telling us they're probably bleeding somewhere else. Pulse, increased rate, indicates another source of bleeding. Again, that's more indicative of shock. A decreased pulse rate, that's indicating or more indicative of that the patient does have increased endocranial pressure or severe hypoxia going on. Respirations. When we assess breathing, make sure we're assessing rate, depth, and pattern. Head injuries can alter the rate, depth, and pattern. Again, they're typically uh, 
just very erratic breathing is how uh, respirations are typically described for closed head injuries with the ICP. So if the following signs are present, consider artificial ventilations at a rate of 20 breaths per minute. You notice that's going to be a little bit faster than what we normally ventilate a patient. Again, while we're breathing just a little bit faster for these patients is because we want to ensure that they're not getting hypercarb hypercarbic or having an increase in CO2. So if they have a suspected head injury, we may breathe a little bit faster for them. So if we have a trauma patient with unequal pupils and they need to be ventilated, breathe a little bit quicker. Fixed pupils. If they're showing signs of Cushing's, again, slowing heart rate, increasing blood pressure. Hemoplegia or hemoparesis, paralysis or weakness on one side of the body. Decrease of two or more points in the GCS. So 13 or more, and we have to ventilate from a traumatic injury, we may breathe for them just a little bit faster. Get a history, if we can, from the patient, from bystanders, somebody that knows them. Ask questions that are relevant to the head injury. What happened? What caused it? Sometimes an injury to the head days or weeks after the incident in which a patient was knocked unconscious can re-injure the brain. It's kind of like it's one of those injuries that once you have your first concussion, you are more likely, it's easier for you to get concussions in the future. Look for pertinent signs and symptoms that may indicate a head injury. Patients may have or suffer from retrograde amnesia. Patient is unable to remember circumstances leading up to the incident, so they can't remember what happened before the incident. Anterograde amnesia, the patient is unable to remember circumstances immediately following the incident. We get on scene, say it's a football player. Retrograde amnesia, we find him on the ground, he wakes up, can't tell us what happened. Doesn't remember playing in a football game. Anterior grade amnesia, we get to the patient, we get the patient up, help the patient off to the sidelines, we're sitting there talking to him. Later on, when he starts to recover, he says he doesn't remember anything that happened. He doesn't remember us getting him off the field. He doesn't remember us talking to him at the, the game. Next thing he knows after his hit is he woke up in the hospital. So again, that amnesia is very common with head injuries. Our care and treatment for a patient with a head injury, standard precautions. We have to be aggressive in our ABCs. Again, we're going to assume spinal injury, so go ahead and take manual inline spinal stabilization. And again, be aggressive in our ABCs. Remember, hypoxemia is a very bad thing, especially for head injuries. It's going to greatly uh, worsen their likelihood of a good recovery. Again, if the patient's not breathing adequately on their own and we suspect that they have a head injury, we can ventilate them at a rate of 20 breaths per minute. Monitor the airway, breathing pulse, mental status for deterioration. Control bleeding. We do not apply pressure to an open or depressed skull injury. We don't want to put more pressure on that brain. And we do not want to stop the flow of blood or fluid from the ears or nose, especially if we suspect there is cerebral spinal fluid mixed into it. And that test that I alluded to earlier 
if we do have bleeding from the ears or nose and we want to check if CSF is in it, we're going to perform a halo test or it may be referred to as a target test. And how we do that, we just simply collect that blood on a four by four, let it drip into our four by four, and then we're gonna set that four by four off to the side. If there's cerebral spinal fluid mixed in with that blood, the CSF is going to separate from the blood. So you'll see the red blood in the center and the CSF that is separating, moving away from the blood. So in this case, this would be a positive halo test, which indicates that it is positive for CSF. Again, be prepared for nausea, vomiting, seizures. Continuously monitor mental status. And again, with head injuries, their mental status can change pretty rapidly. Transport immediately. Again, we focus on preventing or treating those secondary those factors that cause those secondary head injuries, supportive measures, rapid transport to the hospital, and consider ALS backup. Again, we've already kind of talked about that as well. Reassessment, we're gonna reassess the patient every five minutes and pay close attention to the airway and mental status. Again, those can change very rapidly. So in summary, brain injuries can be devastating, leading to death, permanent disability. Increasing intracranial pressure worsens damage to the brain and again can lead to that brain herniation. And treatment is aimed at protecting the spine, aggressive management of the ABCs. And again, we're trying to prevent those factors that will cause that secondary brain injury. Consider controlled ventilations, again, if breathing is inadequate. Okay. Any questions over 